This is News Source 1 Mikiana. Welcome to your new afternoon and evening edition of News 2 Go. All the news and feature segments to keep you entertained and enlightened. News Nation This Hour, I'm Vic Vaughn. More than 70 U.S. and Canadian business associations are calling for the end of a trucker protest on the Windsor-Detroit Ambassador Bridge. Detroit Chamber of Commerce CEO Sandy Baruas among them. We stand united that this issue needs to get resolved one way or another sooner rather than later because this is going to have start to have global supply impacts uh, probably in the next 12 to 24 hours, if not resolved. The so-called Freedom Convoy is a protest against Canadian COVID-19 mandates and health measures. Online chat points at a growing movement among truckers in the U.S. to hold a similar protest. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has lifted her statewide indoor mask mandate, except at schools, says she'll get rid of it there once COVID-19 vaccination rates among that age group goes up. The CDC today recommended continued mask wearing in areas of high transmission. All coronavirus restrictions across Britain are expected to be lifted by the end of the month. Its prime minister says the last to go will be a legal requirement that infected people go into self-quarantine, says even that will be lifted as long as the current trend of a world why drop-in cases continues. A 36-year-old five-time Olympian snowboarder has won the first gold medal for the U.S. at the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. News Nation's Andrew Martin is there. Lindsay Jacobellis was most well-known for showboating back in 2006 in Torino when she won silver in snowboard cross, and she had the gold locked up, decided to get a little fancy, and ended up having to settle for silver. Now, outside of the Olympics, she's been dominant in her career. She has 30 World Cup wins, 10 X Games gold medals, multiple world championships. Jacob Ellis now also holds the title of oldest American woman to ever win gold at a Winter Olympics in any sport. Apple has announced a coming update that allows a seller to complete their transaction with a buyer by tapping iPhones together. Ken Sweet reports. Apple launched Apple Pay in 2014, which allowed cardholders to use their iPhone to make payments. But that required merchants to have a payment terminal. So what Apple has done is it's using the same chip that it uses to send payments to now accept payments. It'll effectively turn iPhones into contactless point-of-sale terminals. Find News Nation on your cable or satellite provider and stay up to date around the clock at NewsNationNow.com and the News Nation Now app. I'm Vic Vaughn. A team of sled dogs training for the Iditarod was attacked by a moose while on a snow-covered trail in a horrific ordeal. Bridget Watkins shared the terrifying encounter Friday evening on social media, saying, This has been the most horrific 24 hours of my life. Watkins said the kennel on a hill mushing team was on a 52-mile run when the bull moose charged. As he charged me, I emptied my gun into him and he never stopped, I ran for my life and prayed I was fast enough to not be killed in that moment. He trampled the team and then turned for us and charged us humans who sought refuge beside our machine. He stopped a mere two feet in front of our snow machine. Shared Watkins. Watkins said she was able to cut six of the dogs on the team free from the machine, but the moose went back to the team attached to her sled and trampled them over and over. She said the attack lasted for nearly an hour. I have never felt so helpless in my life. He would not leave us alone and he even stood over top of the team refusing to retreat, Watkins said. Our friend that lives out on the river was able to finally get to us and kill the animal that dropped just beside the team, 
From Features Story News in Washington, I'm Nick Harper. A team of European scientists say they've smashed the previous world record for energy produced from nuclear fusion. The process, which occurs naturally within the sun and other stars, is seen as the holy grail of clean energy. As FSN's Giles Gibson reports from London. Scientists at the joint European Taurus or JET experiment in the UK say they produced 59 megajoules of energy over five seconds, more than double their previous record. While that's only enough to boil 60 kettles of water, scientists say it's resounding confirmation in the global fusion quest. The team is experimenting with technology which will go into the ITER facility in France, which has been backed by the EU, the US, China and other major countries. If nuclear fusion technology can be scaled up, it would be a game-changer in the search for low-carbon energy sources. Giles Gibson, London. Truck drivers are blocking a key border crossing between the US and Canada, paralyzing crucial trade routes. Protests against vaccine mandates for truckers and other pandemic restrictions have been taking place across Canada for two weeks, as FSN's North America correspondent Kate Fisher reports. The demonstrations have mostly centered on the Canadian capital, Ottawa, and another US border crossing between Montana and Alberta. But the closure of the Ambassador Bridge in the US city of Detroit is particularly significant because nearly 30% of annual trade between the US and Canada comes through it. Experts say the blockades could spark temporary plant closures and layoffs if companies can't transport their products. The bridge also connects families, friends and essential workers, among them Canadian nurses who work in Detroit area hospitals. Kate Fisher, Washington. The US has approved a plan for American troops to help civilians leave Ukraine if Russia invades. The soldiers can't enter Ukraine itself, but will provide support at border crossings in neighbouring Poland. The governor of New York is expected to announce the end of the state's indoor mask mandate for most places, but it's thought rules requiring masks in schools could instead be extended. As FSN Sarah Walton reports from New York. Since December the 31st, New Yorkers coming into busy coffee shops like this and most other public indoor spaces have been required to wear a mask. It was introduced to counter the spread of the Omicron variant of COVID-19, which caused a spike of infections in the region. But the rules are now set to expire on Wednesday. It comes after the governors of several other Democratic-led states announced they're lifting mask mandates for public settings and schools. It's not clear yet if New York Governor Kathy Hochul will announce a similar move for schools here when the current mandate ends in two weeks' time. Sarah Walton, New York. From Bureaus Worldwide, this is FSN. With FSN Spotlight, I'm Simon Marks, looking today at the role French President Emmanuel Macron is playing in efforts to defuse the crisis over Ukraine. He's engaged in shuttle diplomacy this week, already visiting Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow on Monday, and then Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev 24 hours later. So, how's he faring? Domitila Sagramoso is a senior lecturer in security and development at King's College London. I think Macron uh, is being responsible, is understanding the seriousness of this crisis. It was very reassuring to see that Macron was very clear on European points and on Euro-Atlantic positions. He was very firm and he really spelled out in, you know, next to Vladimir Putin what, what were the positions. But he also made it clear that he understood that European security could not be achieved at the expense of Russia's perceptions of insecurity and that some mechanisms needed to be found 
so that Russia feels better integrated. But it's very hard to reach agreement with Vladimir Putin because he, the way he operates mm. is, is not in accordance often with our sort of Western principles of, of international law, of democracy and the use of force. So it's not going to be an easy task. And the French president has himself said on several occasions this week that it may be weeks or even months before the world knows whether his diplomatic efforts have succeeded. With FSN Spotlight, I'm Simon Marks. And the main news again. A team of European scientists say they've smashed the previous world record for energy produced from nuclear fusion. Truck drivers are blocking a key border crossing between the US and Canada, paralyzing crucial trade routes. The US has approved a plan for American troops to help civilians leave Ukraine if Russia invades, and the governor of New York is expected to announce the end of the state's indoor mask mandates for most places. There's more from us on Twitter at Feature Story. That's Feature Story News, Nick Harper reporting. Detailed forecast today mostly sunny, with a high near 35. South wind 5 to 15 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 20 miles per hour tonight mostly cloudy, with a low around 28. Southwest wind 10 to 15 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 20 miles per hour Wednesday a chance of flurries before 1 p.m., then a slight chance of snow showers after 4 p.m. mostly cloudy, with a high near 35. Southwest wind 10 to 15 miles per hour chance of precipitation is 20%. Wednesday night a 40% chance of snow showers, mainly between 7 p.m. and 1 a.m. Cloudy, with a low around 25. West wind around 10 mph Thursday mostly cloudy, with a high near 29. West wind around 10 mph Thursday night a 50% chance of snow after 1 a.m. Mostly cloudy, with a low around 20. Friday snow likely, mainly before 1 p.m. mostly cloudy, with a high near 37. Chance of precipitation is 70%. Friday night a 30% chance of snow showers, mainly before 1 a.m. Mostly cloudy, with a low around 21. Saturday a 20% chance of snow showers before 1 p.m. mostly cloudy, with a high near 24. What would you do? if you found out there was a book in the school library that encouraged prayer for leaders to have their teeth broken and celebrated the day folks could dip their toes in their enemy's blood. Well, some of us might be tempted to go to the principal to have that book removed, right? Others of us might be tempted to go out and buy it, such as the day we're living in. So what's the book, Joel? The book is the Bible. Hi, I'm Pastor Joel of Heart City Church, and we are sampling the Psalms, and I mean all of them, even the ones that are called the imprecatory Psalms, which means they call on God to bring judgment down on his and our enemies. Psalm 58 does that and places the bullseye on evil rulers. It begins, Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No. In your heart you devise injustice, and your hands mete out violence on the earth. Now this prayer is going to go into vengeance, and that may make us uncomfortable. It may seem to contradict Jesus' call for us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute. But the same Jesus is the author of Psalm 58. So we simply need to say, Amen, 
knowing that he understands our world and us better than we do. And you may say, wait a minute, Joel, David wrote this psalm. Yes, David was the altar, but David wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And think about something. David will call on God to destroy leaders who spread lies and poison folks. This same David who committed adultery and then murdered a man to cover it up. David is not exempt from what he is praying for God to do. And neither are we, as this psalm is a mirror for us all, convicting all of us of the ways in which we use whatever power has got, God has given us, the ways in which we use that for evil. The only reason we fear praying Psalm 58 is because we believe that God is holy and he hates evil, and he is, and he does. Friends, this psalm is a wake-up call to any amnesia we have about evil in our world. We should pray for our own death, death to sin that is in us still, that we might be crucified with Christ so that we can live a new life in God. And by the way, if you actually like praying this because you don't like who's in office right now, remember that your prayer is not going to be answered when the guy you vote for gets in. Our problem is that until our Lord Jesus returns in glory, wicked leaders will continue to rule our earth. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. So Joel, what do we do with Psalm 58? Well, notice it specifically targets rulers who devise injustice, and they're basically described as lying snakes. Jesus actually said in John 8 that all of us live to please one of two fathers. All of us live to please one of two fathers, which means if a ruler is not serving the heavenly father, he is serving the original lying snake. And so we need to pray that they be defanged. We should pray that God overrule the folly of unbelieving rulers. Pray that God restrain their hearts from passing evil laws. Now we need to remember that God is the one who puts leaders in place to be his servants, Romans 13. Paul will tell us to pray for our leaders in 1 Timothy 2, for all in high places, so that we might live quiet and peaceful lives. But Paul will add, that their authority is superseded by God's. Thus, they are accountable. When they don't allow us, the church, to serve our God, we could pray for God to call them to account. And this psalm says quite graphically that they be like stillborn. That language might cause us to take pause. But don't forget Jesus said that it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. Now you get to verse 10, the dipping feet and the blood of the wicked rulers. Uh, that's the toughest. That's actually caused me to recall Revelation 19, that dreadful day when our Lord Jesus returns. He is coming to make war, and what is he wearing? A robe dipped in blood. That ought to make us tremble now. So we'll not worry about the bloody feet. I'm sure it will make sense then. Two final thoughts. If we struggle to pray such a prayer against wicked leaders, then I would encourage you to pray it for our brothers and sisters. Last week I watched a documentary about what happens to Christians in Iran. We should pray that God bring an end to the atrocity evil leaders commit in such places. Lastly, I didn't read the final verse, verse 11, which may help us understand this psalm. After the wicked are destroyed, we read, Then people will say, Surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Derek Kidner writes, if tyranny is given formidable scope, so is faith. The righteous will see their harvest, but its glory will be not least. 
that it was sold in tears and awaited with indomitable patience. Remember who you are, my friends, and who you belong to. On Tuesday, February 8th, SpaceX and Starlink officially confirmed what many people started speculating about on Twitter is that its newest batch of Starlink satellites, launched on Thursday, February 3rd, may have had an issue in orbit and didn't quite get to where they wanted to go. Some speculated it may have been the rocket itself, but what we are finding out from SpaceX and Starlink is that it actually is related to space weather, or events that come from the sun that impacted satellites in orbit. It's not the first time we've seen satellites get impacted, however, this may be the most sudden impact to satellites we have seen on record. In fact, not only did it take down one Starlink satellite, it took down up to 40 of its newest batch of satellites. So in this video, we're gonna talk about what exactly space weather is and how this event impacted Starlink so significantly. So first, broad brush. What is Starlink if you don't know? Well, real quickly, Starlink is going to be an internet service which will cover the entire world powered by satellites in low Earth orbit. The goal is to provide internet service to people in more rural areas that may not have access to high-speed internet. Full disclosure, I use Starlink at my house. So that's a thing that's happening right now. So what is space weather? Space weather events are events that happen on Earth but are caused by the sun. We're gonna be focusing primarily here on geomagnetic storms. They're rated like hurricanes on a one through five scale, G1 through G5. The event that happened on Friday, February 4th, which impacted the Starlink satellites was the lowest, just a G1 or a KP5 event. However, the first impacts to Earth and the first time that the Earth was feeling the effects of space weather actually started as early as February 1st, a prolonged stretch of active weather. And this is not unusual because we are entering solar cycle 25. A solar cycle is a roughly 11 year period of time when the sun is getting more and more active, more and more sunspots or dark areas on the surface of the sun that may produce these solar flares occur. In fact, as of this video, no day in 2022 has gone without a sunspot. Now this solar cycle 25 is starting off more active than forecast, but again, we are on the upwind here. The peak of the solar cycle will happen around 2025 to 2026. So getting all these active solar flares is definitely not that unheard of, and in fact is likely to be expected. So the sun can produce these events called solar flares. Solar flares are essentially a huge plume of energy that gets shot out by the sun. Again, we're gonna keep things pretty simple for this video. Now, here on Earth, we see the impacts of those solar storms. However, our magnetic field protects us from any real threat of them. However, if you get a really bad solar storm, the way the particles in the atmosphere interact with the magnetic field coming from the sun can actually have impacts to the power grid as well as satellites in low Earth orbit. And satellites in particular are susceptible to solar storms because they're not as protected. Now I want to go through kind of a time of the events as they unfolded with this event. There was a Warning well ahead of time, a watch and warning for the initial impact from a coronal mass ejection back in late January. We had that impact of the CME on February 1st at 2145 Zulu. That's when the solar weather really began ramping up. And this continued at least through February 5th, a prolonged stretch here of active weather. What I want to point out is that there was a KP5 warning 
anticipating the potential threat of reaching KP5 through at least February 1st into the 2nd, late the 1st into the 2nd. And we did, in fact, reach that KP5 level on February 3rd at 0846 Zulu. There was a warning ahead of time, and that warning did specify minor impacts to satellite operations are possible. But this is still ahead of the launch. I want to take you inside the launch window. That was on February 3rd at 18.13 Zulu. And what you'll notice is that there was, in fact, the KP-5 warning was extended well through the launch window of the Starlink mission. And that did continue to specify minor impacts to satellite operations possible. And this warning was continued and extended through February 4th. Now, I believe the time frame that when things really went downhill is when KP-5 was reached on February 4th at 1605 Zulu. And this is about 24 hours after launch. Again, there was a warning ahead of time for potentially reaching KP-5. And that's when we did, in fact, reach KP-5 on February 4th. And that is when SpaceX claims that uh, the geomagnetic storm had an impact on their operations. And again, there was adequate warning from the Space Weather Prediction Center talking about the potential of impacts to satellites. So again, to summarize, we're in a new solar cycle, solar cycle 25. We're on the upwind, heading uphill on towards the peak of this solar event. And again, we expect a lot of solar storms. That's not uncommon for this event. So why did this impact Starlink so significantly on this go around? Well, we're gonna take the magic whiteboard here and we're gonna talk a little bit about why this unfolded the way it did and how Starlink satellites are in particular susceptible to solar events. So say you have the Earth right here. There is your Earth. Starlink satellites operate above the Earth's atmosphere, which extends out like so. This is the atmosphere. The atmosphere is made up of lots of different particles, like oxygen and nitrogen molecules, all hanging out inside this atmosphere. Those molecules are inside the atmosphere there. Starlink satellites operate above most of the atmosphere, not all the atmosphere, but most of the atmosphere. That atmosphere could extend as far out as the moon, for example, but they operate at about 500 and 50 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. Traditional satellites um, that are providing internet to the world, uh, say operated by Viasat, are known as its geostationary orbit. That's about 35,700 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. Starlink having the advantage being in low Earth orbit because that allows them to provide much faster internet with much better latency. Basically the ability for you to connect to a server that allows you to play games better, video chat better, being in low Earth orbit. So there's an advantage there. But here's why Starlink is susceptible to these solar storms. Here's what happens. Say you got the sun right here. It fires off a coronal mass ejection. That coronal mass ejection then interacts with Earth's magnetic field. That solar storm then, geomagnetic storm, heats up the atmosphere. As the atmosphere heats up, it expands. As the atmosphere expands, more molecules begin pushing outward from the surface of the Earth. The atmosphere gets larger and larger. And so these satellites in low Earth orbit are now impacting more of these molecules of the atmosphere, therefore encountering what's known as atmospheric drag. Basically, they're getting slowed down by hitting more and more of these molecules, and they can no longer maintain this perfect orbit 
and may re-enter Earth's atmosphere crashing. So again, that's pretty much a summary of what's happening here. You have the Earth, the atmosphere. The atmosphere is expanding as it's heated up by that solar geomagnetic storm from that impact of the sun's solar storm. That's impacting your atmosphere, that sun, it's heating up the atmosphere. The atmosphere is expanding. More and more molecules are pushing outward from the surface of the Earth and therefore impacting more and more satellites and those satellites are getting bogged down. So why was this so devastating for Starlink? Flip the board around. So traditionally, again, SpaceX Starlink satellites operate at 550 kilometers, but before they reach their operational altitude, they're slowly raised. And when they're in these lower levels, they're doing in-orbit checkouts. That's just to make sure that they're functioning as they should be. The reason Starlink operates them at a much lower altitude earlier on is that if one of these Starlink satellites has an issue, it won't be a threat to satellites operating in their traditional altitude. If you had a satellite that's defunct up here, it could pose a threat to other satellites operating at that altitude, not only Starlink satellites, but any satellite or maybe the International Space Station. So as it's going under checkouts here in the lower level of the atmosphere, it is much more susceptible to drag. So it's sitting right over that fine line of the atmosphere, but as it expands just a little bit more, more of these satellites are getting impacted by those molecules of the atmosphere. Therefore, there is our problem. The Starlink satellites were still in this checkout phase. And once the solar storm impacted, SpaceX put those Starlink satellites into a safe mode to protect them from the solar storm. 40 of those satellites did not come out of that safe mode and the impact of the density, the increasing density of the atmosphere, more and more molecules as it got heated up, that's gonna bring those satellites back down to Earth. So again, to summarize, the G1 geomagnetic storm added enough heat to the atmosphere, the atmosphere expanded, those satellites hit more and more molecules as the density of that position that they were in increased, bogging them down. That's when they re-entered Earth's atmosphere because of that atmospheric drag. That was why 40, at least up to 40 Starlink satellites will re-enter. So why did this happen with just a G1 storm? Well, part of the issue is how long this has been ongoing. Again, think back to the beginning of this video, we were talking about impacts of space weather all the way back to February 1st. And during that entire window, all the way through when these satellites encountered the problem on February 4th, that atmosphere was taking on that solar storm, that geomagnetic storm. And again, to recap, the launch actually occurred in the middle of a G1 storm. You can see here, February 3rd, 18Z is right about here, right in the middle of this G1 warning. This G1 watch continued all the way through at least 0Z February 4th. But again, you can see these warnings did continue and they were issued well ahead of time all the way into February 5th. There was a break here late February 5th and then more warnings took over February 6th before things have really calmed down since. But they launched right in a window of very active solar weather. Now, overall, this will continue to be a threat for satellites in the future. This is not the first time this has happened to a satellite provider. There have been instances in the past of strong solar storms knocking out satellites and bricking satellites. In fact, the very similar case of a very high-end solar storm increased the atmosphere's density in the very high altitudes and actually was part of what brought down Skylab way back in the day. 
So yes, there have been instances of this happening in the past. This is not the first time. And unfortunately, this will be something they'll have to be contended with. Now, thankfully, we are doing a lot more research. There's a lot of projects out there to try and better understand the impacts of space weather, better predict space weather as well, and also to build more resilient satellites in orbit. And of course, not only satellites getting impacted by solar storms, but also the electrical grid on Earth is pretty susceptible to very high-end solar storms. So the more we can learn, the better. That's where the Parker Solar Probe launch came into play in 2018. That's gonna to continue to find more and more things. And there's a lot of other projects out there as well. So again, that's a summary on how the sun destroyed 40 Starlink satellites. I hope you found this video interesting and educational. Again, I don't do these types of videos too often, but I really do enjoy them. If you think I should do them more, let me know in the comments below. Let me know what you thought about this video. Did you learn anything? Did you find it interesting? Please let me know. Please subscribe for more videos as well. And if you're on this channel, feel free to check out some of my other videos, including some of my Starlink content, other spacey and sciencey nerdy stuff, and also have a lot of storm chasing content as well. Thanks for watching, everybody. Give this video a like if you liked it, and we'll see you again in the next video. Today's episode is sponsored by Google. Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Wednesday, February 9th. I'm Margaret Tollef, in for Nyla Boudou. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Cryptocurrency spends big to reach 100 million people. Plus, why a failed, vague agreement holds promise in the Ukraine-Russia crisis. But first, the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, gaining momentum in Florida, is today's one big thing. This week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis expressed his support for what critics are calling the Don't Say Gay Bill. It could restrict LGBTQ discussion in elementary schools and allow parents to sue in some cases. Axios's Celine Sanfelice has been reporting on this from Tampa, and it's here to explain. So, Celine, what does this bill do? This bill has been dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill, but it's actually called the Parental Rights and Education Bill. A lot of the debate around what's happening to kids in schools has to do with what parents sign off on. So this bill would say that students in any primary school level can't talk about any sort of gender or sexual identity. And that goes for teachers. It's about 31 words in the bill, but it is the center of the debate around it. There are a lot of bills that are never going anywhere that we don't write stories about or talk about. What makes this different? Among about 280 anti-LGBTQ bills that are in legislatures around the country right now, this one is, if not the most extreme, the most popular. After Governor DeSantis gave it his blessing on Monday, the Senate Education Committee voted to approve it. It looks like it's going to pass. And the governor also claims that kids in schools are being told by teachers, don't worry, don't pick your gender yet. What are teachers and students saying about this? Students from the LGBTQ community came and testified against the bill at Tuesday's Senate hearing, as well as several teachers, uh, some of whom said that they would quit if this bill passed. What is the reaction like among parents um, on, in both sides of the debate? 
So at Tuesday's hearing, a woman actually spoke in favor of the bill. Uh, This woman sued her local school board after she found out that her child's middle school formed what she called a transgender support plan with her child without actually notifying her, the parent, and then wouldn't give the parents any information about that plan. On the other hand, you have parents who spoke at the hearing and asked, how can my child participate in school projects when they have two moms or two dads? And how can they participate in things like projects about their family if they can't even talk about their families? Celine Sanfelice co-writes the Axios Tampa Bay newsletter. Thanks, Celine. Thank you. We'll be back in 15 seconds with crypto ads and the Super Bowl. Google keeps more people safe online than anyone else by blocking malware, phishing attempts, spam messages, and potential cyber attacks. Every day is safer with Google. Learn how Google helps keep everyone safe online at safety.google. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Margaret Tolliv, in for Nyla Boodoo. On Sunday, the Super Bowl will include cryptocurrency ads for the first time. Some are dubbing it the Crypto Bowl. In a way, it's crypto's big reveal. But there are a lot of Americans, okay, me, who still don't really totally get what crypto is. So we've called on Axios's resident crypto expert, Dan Primack, to explain. Dan, these are really expensive ads, $7 million for a 30-second spot. Who are these companies trying to reach? Are they trying to reach sports fans or like all Americans or investors? They're trying to reach you, right? The person who said you don't understand, but maybe you've got some money to invest. Maybe you invest in stocks or you buy art or, or do something else. Crypto is going mainstream. And you've got, for example, Crypto.com just put its name on what was the Staples Center, which is where the Lakers play in L.A. And FTX also had its logo on all the Major League Baseball umpire uniforms during the World Series last year. All of this is to say they're looking for a huge audience, right? They want that 50, 100, 200 million people who don't already invest in crypto. And sports, and particularly the Super Bowl, is that one still central meeting spot where we all watch the same thing live. And so that's what they're going for. Biggest bang for their buck. So maybe a quick debrief for the uninitiated. What is crypto? Is it another form of cash? Can it be used? Who can use it? Right now, it doesn't have much practical application. You know, early on in the idea of Bitcoin, it was, oh, you'd go to the store and you could buy your cup of coffee with Bitcoin. And to some extent, some people can do that, but it's really too volatile to have it be actually practical. And there's lots of different forms of crypto. It's not just a dollar or just Bitcoin. There's lots of different types of cryptocurrencies you can invest in and trade on all of these platforms. I kind of feel like an ancient person with a bag of salt who's like, why would I use this piece of paper or this lump of gold instead of just trading salt or donkeys like what how does it work and how can you can you hold it in your hand no but you can't hold a stock certificate in your hand anymore either right if you buy shares of ibm or gm or google they don't send you anything anymore it's all data crypto is from a practical perspective if you're trading it Same thing. You never get a physical thing, but you've got some. It's sitting in an account and it either gains in value or it goes down in value and you buy it or you sell it or you hold it forever. How long until our salaries are paid in crypto? How long until our 401k is saved in crypto? 
hopefully a very long time because this is incredibly volatile. You know, you're talking about, we talk about inflation, right? Which is, you know, maybe 6% year over year. Crypto can go up or down, particularly certain cryptocurrencies, 20% in a day. If you were getting paid in this, you might have a really good payday and you could have a disastrous can't pay the rent payday. How are these companies actually paying for these very expensive ads? Cash, cold, hard cash. Uh, They're not paying for these in crypto, but they are making lots and lots of money off these crypto trades. And that money often is coming in cash, right? You link these to, say, a bank account or you take a certain amount of money and put it in. You're putting cash in. It's getting converted into something else. But they are making money. You know, FTX, they just raised venture capital at a $32 billion valuation. That's $32 billion U.S. dollars. And the money they raised was in U.S. dollars. Dan Permek is the business editor at Axios. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. In the coming days, as Western European allies and the U.S. try to de-escalate the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, you can expect to hear a lot of references to the Minsk Accords. So we asked Axios's national security correspondent, Zach Basu, for a crash course in what they are and why they matter. So, Zach, what are the Minsk Accords? So the Minsk Accords were signed back in 2014 and 2015. It's actually two sets of agreements. Um, And they basically called for a ceasefire between Ukraine and the Russian-backed separatists who were uh, waging a war uh, in the eastern Donbass region. They were signed under heavy military duress. The Ukrainians were suffering heavy casualties on the battlefield, and they basically signed this agreement, uh, this ceasefire, in exchange for concessions to the separatists in the east the concessions include giving these separatist-controlled regions some form of special status in exchange for you know, Russia withdrawing its forces and, and returning control of the border to Ukraine. But they haven't actually been implemented. The ceasefire never held, uh, and there have been a lot of disagreements about how Minsk should actually be interpreted. If they've never been implemented, why are they being viewed as the best chance to stop a catastrophic war throughout Europe? Well, in some ways, that sort of speaks to just how dire the situation is. I mean, over the past seven years, there hasn't really been a way to bridge the gaps between the two sides. But, you know, if there is going to be a diplomatic solution, the thinking is that it will be within this framework. But it's really contingent on Russia deciding that it's in their interest to end the war on Ukraine, which so far they've shown no interest in doing. Axios' national security reporter, Zach Besu. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me. And we leave you today with this. Some of you may have grown up with Build-A-Bear, the personalized teddy bear company found in malls around the U.S. Well, it turns out those bears have grown up too. Just released the After Dark collection of stuffed bears, rabbits, frogs, and more clad in undies or boxers with the ultimate accessories, a bottle of wine, or some hard seltzer. Just another sign that this pandemic has gone on way too long. I'm Margaret Tolive, and that's all we've got for you today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow morning. Every week, the Art of Power podcast shares intimate, unexpected conversations with changemakers like Barack Obama and Margaret Cho. Listen to WBEZ Chicago host Arthi Shahani and The Art of Power wherever you get your podcasts. 
Google keeps more people safe online than anyone else by blocking malware, phishing attempts, spam messages, and potential cyber attacks. Every day is safer with Google. Learn how Google helps keep everyone safe online at safety.google. This is News Source 1 Michiana, Elkhart South Bend, 2023-2024.